I played a gig last night in Pasadena, Texas. It's a suburb of Houston. And I played at a man's house. This man's named Kenny Pipes. And he has put on 100 shows over the last seven years. And he's had a lot of the people that you hear on this uh, show come play for him. And he's so dedicated to having people play at his house that he removed a wall so that he could have a bigger room and get more people in there. And then he built a stage in his living room. And then he put in a permanent PA. And I had the honor of playing the 100th show that he's put on. And I started thinking about a lot of the people that I play for all over the world. There's a lot of people like Kenny. There's people who put in a whole lot of effort to put on gigs that people like me and some of the folks on this show have played. And these folks make it possible for me to make a living and be able to feed my family. It's not often that they take money and they work very hard to try to get people to come out to the shows. So I wanted to take this time to just uh, thank them and let people know that these people exist. And more than anything, I wanted to thank Kenny for letting me headline his 100th show. Thanks, Kenny. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in a car in LaGrange, Texas, right outside of the courthouse. Don't ask. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Dustin Welch. Dustin is a singer, songwriter, and a multi-instrumentalist who currently lives in Buda, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Dustin at DustinWelch.com. I've known Dustin for a few years now. He's a really good guy, super sweet, and just really easy to be around. And he's got a lot of great stories about growing up in Nashville and being on the road and then moving to Texas. And he was nice enough to share those with me over at my buddy Cameron's house in Austin, Texas. So uh, sit back. I think you're going to enjoy this. Here's Dustin Welch. I was born in a little town called Franklin, just outside of Nashville. You know where it is, probably. Yeah. I, and... My folks at the time, they were living in this old plantation home with a, a, maybe one or two other families. Giant place, real drafty. They had like, I think they were growing reefer out in the woods and had, had there was an old abandoned horse track in the backyard or something. Uh, they had an old like dried up creek bed they had turned into a, a go-kart racetrack and would never actually get all the way through it, you know, before they'd flip it and... But at the time, uh, so this was 1980, um, and I was born right before Christmas, so it was it was in the dead of winter, and uh, 
my grandparents, I think, had actually bought them a wood stove. But that was it. That's all they had is old drafty, you know, turn of the century home. And my mom, I think at the time, she was she's she was a teacher. So, you know, she was fresh out of college. And I think she was maybe teaching up the road at this, uh, like, special ed school. And then my dad was trying to figure out how to be a songwriter for a living. Uh, so maybe a year or two after I was born, he got signed to Tree Publishing, now Sony Tree. Um, and the first song he ever had cut was actually by Roger Miller, of all people, you know, for your first cut. It was a song called Everybody Gets Crazy Now and Then. And after Roger passed, the highwayman wanted to do a, a song of his kind of in tribute. And they recorded that song not knowing that it was, it was one that my dad wrote, in fact. <laughs> and so, uh, so not only did Roger Miller sing it, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings. I mean, it's, it's kind of your first cut, you know, that, that, it's, it was pretty unbelievable. Um, but, you know, I mean, in those days, I think they were living off like 80 bucks a month or something, you know, and I, I have no idea to this day how they managed to be able to raise me. Uh, I was born at home. All, all me and my two younger sisters were, were all born at home. You know, real mom was, you know, a real kind of hippie chick and I did everything all natural. So then... After a couple of years, we moved out to, I think, Brentwood, maybe, and eventually ended up in, in Nashville. Uh, and Savannah was born over in, uh, like, the Richland area uh, over there. Lived right down the road from the Nicholsons, uh, Gary and Barbara Nicholson. And uh, they had four boys, all kind of around the same age as us. And so I, me and their son Travis were were you know, best friends growing up. One of my other, uh, really one of my, my first childhood friends, and you know, before we could even walk, uh, a fellow named Lagan, Lagan Blue Siebert, Hugh Moffat's son, and PB Siebert. And Lagan's little sister is Kesha, the international pop star. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I remember, like you know, they they ended up moving away and uh, to L.A. or something. And they came back, and PB had had Kesha at that time, and uh, I was probably about ten or eleven or something. Me and Legan started hanging out again. Kesha would just be this little snot-nosed brat, just always bothering us while we were trying to play video games and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Kesha, God, leave us alone. And then now, nowadays, yeah, they they got you know reality tv show and she's she's all over the place it's it, it's just hilarious to me but then uh yeah the nicholson family uh you know gary's uh he's he's written a million number one hits and great singer great guitar player and and for the most part all their boys are, are doing like real creative stuff travis is a he's a film director and producer and actor and all that stuff nowadays well, were you guys playing music together as a as young kids yeah i you know, I didn't really get serious about it until I was about eight, I want to say. And <laughs> serious, you know, like, I, but, you know, I'd go and, and pick up my dad's guitar and start, you know, fooling around on it. Finally, he kind of went, well, hell, you know, 
maybe should we get you a guitar? And I bought this, it's an old Ward's catalog guitar from the thirties. Bought from a neighbor of Mike Henderson's who had just like written a Garth Brooks hit. I have no idea why he was wanting to get rid of this thing even, but, but it's the guitar I still play to this day. Uh, and they've written probably every song that I've got on. Really, it was interesting kind of family dynamics because everybody we knew was in the music industry of some kind. All the Riders in the Sky folks uh, lived in that neighborhood too. And, uh, you know, so... Ranger Doug. Ranger Doug and Woody Paul. And uh, so grew up with all their kids. And that was cool getting to, you know, go out to the Opry and be able to see the, the Riders in the Sky shows as, as little kids, you know. That, stuck with me. Eventually we, we moved over to Sylvan Park, uh, Wyoming Avenue, and that's where, where Ada was born, my youngest sister. About half a block away, uh, Carrie Ann Hurst moved in. She's now one half of the, the duo Shovels and Rope. But Carrie Ann was, you know, just this kind of buck tooth gal from Mississippi and you know I think I was maybe 12 when we met and even at that time she was just singing our ass off and writing really cool songs and and so put a band together in the neighborhood basically uh our friend Corey Yance who lived up the road uh whose dad was he was in the Statesiders Mel Tillis's touring band uh so Corey he began playing drums with us, and uh, so we had had that band all through high school. We called it the Groundlings because the little pizza joint that we'd play once a month or whatever, there, there wasn't enough seats to – I think between the band, there was maybe three different high schools represented, and so everybody you know, from all the schools would come out, and there, there, there wasn't enough room, so everybody would kind of you know, sit down on the ground – then just like crowd in shoulder to shoulder right around the stage. And, and we were terrible. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, kind of hippie jam band sort of deal, but it was, it was an event, you know, just to give the kids something to do. So then after that, I put a band together with me and Corey and, uh, and Travis played with us some also and a, a few other music row brats, a few other musicians, kids called the Swindlers. And after doing that for about six months, we met Justin Towns Earl, and he, oh gosh, he was probably 17, I want to say, 16, 17 when we met. Uh, and he was just writing smoke and killer stuff also and had that great pick and style. And Justin came into the Swindlers, and, and we, we did that for a good six years or so. Uh, Corey Yance now, he's been out playing with Jack White uh, in, in that band. Not playing drums. He it, when when we started the Swindlers, he he moved over to the mandolin. Uh, I think the first song I taught him on the mandolin was uh, "Shortening Bread." I think, in fact. And then uh, and and it it became pretty clear pretty quick that Corey had a, a really great high harmony voice. Uh, so we you know kind of we we were all such students of music history and everything in general you know old you know going through the harry smith folk anthology and the carl sandberg's american song bag and it, it, all of that stuff you know and all those old jug band recordings and we'd do some hoagie carmichael or Irvin berlin stuff here and there and uh you know some gershwin brothers stuff or whatever 
but then a lot of you know real hillbilly kind of stuff also. The Old Crow Medicine Show boys moved to town. Corey plays with them also quite a bit these days too. But they came to town. They'd just been out, you know, basically playing on the streets, busking uh, previous to that, and and came into Nashville and just started romping and stomping. And 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 it was it was like you know they were they were kind of the sister band for what we were doing. Except also in those days, I was I was working at the Bluebird. Uh, the Bluebird Cafe. I was I started out washing dishes and eventually ended up being the kitchen manager there, and then ended up running sound. I think I probably worked there maybe six or seven years, uh, and and was practically kind of running the joint. In fact, by the time I I, I split, but uh, again, you know, just like night after night, soaking up every bit, you know, and, and you you really like you learn what not to do almost more than you you know by watching. That kind of stuff, uh, you know. Because there's a lot of a lot of folks that are coming in just as green as you get, but you know, you, you'll you'll watch that stuff and you go, okay, well, I, I shouldn't make that mistake, at least, you know. But well, who were some of the really greats that were playing the Bluebird right around then? Oh man, you know, it's like Tony Arada uh, comes to mind, of course. Uh, uh, Mark Germino, who's kind of one of my heroes. In fact, you and him need to hook up somehow. I think you you guys really dig each other. Jamino, uh, he was he was kind of part of the the great credibility scares, Steve Earl calls it. <laughs> uh, got I love signed that term. Yeah, got, <laughs> got signed right at the same time as Steve and Nancy Griffith and uh and Mark was making these really rocking, really prolific, profound, kind of beautifully crafted kind of songs that nobody really wanted to buy or cut, you know, but every once in a while, you know, somebody like Amy Lou Harris or Johnny Cash would come along and do one of his songs, you know, so, but Jermino, he, he was, I, I don't know, he'd, he'd play there a couple times a year, but, but mostly he'd come in at the end of the night, you know, after, you know, towards the end of the, the show or something, we'd sit there and close down the bar and I, I learned a whole lot from him. He he really kind of took me under his wing, and, and we've we've written several songs together. In fact, uh, he ended up becoming a a novelist. I think he's got maybe three unpublished novels that are just brilliant and hilarious. And I really hold him in in the highest regard uh, out of anybody. But then my dad was working with guys like Kieran Kane, for instance, for years. And I mean, my gosh. It, you know those old O'Kane's records still hold up, uh, and 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 totally kind of aside from everything else that was going on in in town, uh, and and that's still how Karen operates too. You know he's got his own thing, and it's uh, really brilliant. David Only, uh, you know another just genius writer. I, I was just stunned when I first discovered his stuff. Uh, you know so there's. There was a lot of those kind of folks that, that really sort of, you know, they 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 saw that I had a desire to be a writer at least, and and really kind of saw to it every chance they could. You know, they they'd sort of, you know, be be giving me advice on stuff. And, um, it was really a, one of the coolest educations possible. Really, I I kind of I, I feel really really 
extremely grateful. You know, I had a, a very unique situation there. You know. People listening to this will hear some of these uh, names of people that you're around when you're a kid, and that's so out of their reality, but it had to just seem like a normal childhood to you. Yeah, you know, you'd see John Prine at the baseball park with mustard on his chin, and, you know, that's, <laughs> oh, hey, there's Prine, you know. I've seen him at Arnold's before. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's totally, it was it was years and years before I realized there was anything, you know, different about it. Were there people that would stop by the house to visit your dad that that were famous that you just didn't realize were famous? Yeah. I, that never, you know, fame and all that kind of stuff didn't really occur to me uh, for quite a while. But once I did see that, then then having known these people personally and seeing, you know, well, they're taking care of their families by they're putting food on the table by writing songs or or playing on records or whatever you know it's and and they're they're real down to earth and they're taking care of business they're getting up every day and they're they're going to work and and so that was really cool to kind of once you know once i discovered cmt or for instance you know we'd sit around and just like watch that for hours looking out for friends of ours you know and <laughs> and and you'd go you know like well, well hell this is actually you know how cool is that you know and i because you you know them as people you know and and, and they're they're not any different than anybody else you know they just do this whole other thing for a living that's that's kind of can be extraordinary you know but watching watching that kind of work ethic really sort of stuck with me at least <laughs> there's one time when i was real young i uh, was talking about people dropping by the house and there was for some reason i had it in my mind i think something my mom had told me that like when you pee yellow it's that means that you're healthy which i guess maybe it's like if you take a bunch of vitamins you know your, your piss turns bright yellow but you know so i was four or five or something and I had just gone and taken a leak, and I and I come running into the living room, and you know, you go, mom, mom, I got great news, you know, and, and I, I I figured out later on that that you know because they were sitting there with some company, I had some guests over to the house. I figured out later on it's Garth Brooks. <laughs> and, you know, because like when he came to town, I. He was he was going kind of searching out the his you know fellow Okies. There was actually the the first time he moved to town. This is a kind of interesting, and you know I don't think my dad will ever tell you this, but my dad was playing down at Windows on the Cumberland. I don't even know if that place is still there anymore. I uh, down on Second Avenue. I uh, really cool old joint, but my dad was playing a gig there, and and Garth Brooks he had just moved to town. And he went down to see him play, and there was it was him and you know a couple other people in the audience, and and according to Garth, he 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 just said, well, he said you know this this guy's killing it. This is this is this guy's an amazing songwriter, and there's nobody here. He said, I don't even stand a chance. And the next day, he got up and he moved back to Oklahoma. And it took him another like year and a half before he, he kind of got himself together to, to come back to town and and then came up, you know, and hunted my dad down and, and sort of and 
I think like they ran into each other at an airport several years ago or something. And Garth was just like, man, <clears throat> I'll never forget that advice you gave me. Changed my life. You know, and that's all he said. And he walked off. My dad's standing there going, what the hell did I tell him? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, there, was, there was this wild-ass punk rock band out of San Diego that needed a, a multi-instrumentalist, basically. They, they were looking for a banjo player that could do mandolin, slide guitar, and all that kind of stuff, which is... That's about the extent of it for me, but you know that's 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 still uh, you know always you know really gravitated towards some of those open tuning instruments and that sort of thing. Just loved playing the banjo, and, but it never never really paid any attention to any punk rock music at all. You know, we we were doing string band stuff, you know, and just started talking to these guys, and and they they. They just they they sent me a plane ticket and asked me to come out to L.A. to to audition, you know, which which was about two days of rehearsal, and then I jumped in a van and we drove straight from L.A. to Madison, Wisconsin, and started on a on about a month and a half tour with Flogging Molly, the the first gig in Madison, you know, they they were acknowledging that I was you know this hillbilly Tennessee boy that. It had you know didn't didn't really know anything, so they were you know trying to help out you know and get me a little sort of more punk rock and and they they had me they gave me a pair of pants that they're like those uh you know all those punk rockers wear those like those pants that that if you're if you're sitting down they they end about mid shin high waters yeah <laughs> bloods um and so the first. The first gig that I played with, I mean, I, I was like, going, okay, well, you guys say so, you know, it's look okay. And it, it, was, <laughs> it was just stupid. Uh, but, you know, and I'm going, what, why are all these people like jumping around pushing each other? And they're like, it's a mosh pit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was really cool though, because I mean, we were gigging night after night and, and, and the band got really tight and and being able to play in that kind of capacity too you know playing big huge high energy crowds and and playing really rocking you know playing faster on the banjo than i had with most bluegrass stuff even you know and and so so yeah we we toured with the flog and molly for i think it was maybe a month and a half and then ended up back in LA after that, laid up there for a couple of weeks uh, with my buddy Travis, who I was talking about earlier. He, he was living there. Uh, and then we went over to Europe for uh, about a month, toured over there with Reverend Horton Heat. Did something like, like 17 countries in 22 days. <laughs> you know, one of those kind of things. And then then came back and then... I, I went back to Nashville and kind of laid up for about a month, and then we went off and started the Warp tour. And we did. I went back to LA. We we worked up some some new stuff. Went and played a gig in Denver, and drove straight from Denver to Asbury Park, and stopped in Kansas City to rehearse. <laughs> 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 it was. It's insane. So yeah, and then we went and played uh, this bowling alley in Asbury Park, Asbury Lanes, and uh, 
and then from there then went and hooked up in Baltimore and got on the warp tour and did that for about a month and it was brutal because there was there was no no way that you could actually stay in a hotel pretty much the entire time you're you're you know you're having to go six hours from gig to gig but you got to check in at the festival at eight in the morning so you you finish your set and you just kind of drag your stuff to the van and then drive all night and try and you know try and snooze on the way or oh man it was it was tough and so then you'd, you'd be there at the festival all day long it's the dead of summer and we we'd just sit there and and you know try and you know pass the time we we uh just sit there with a cooler of beer or energy drinks or whatever and try and pass the, the day until the, it's time to play the set and there were a bunch of bands you know on that run that were doing the exact same thing you know there's all, of course all the the guys playing the main stages they were in the buses and that's that's why we had to we had to keep up with all the buses you know but uh but it was interesting you know i mean there's there was a you know, like a hundred bands or something on that that whole deal, and so you know, good sixty of them or whatever, they're all doing the same thing. So you're just kind of like looking around at each other, just going, "I cannot believe you're still holding up," you know. And <laughs> and I be making a hundred dollars a night, something like oh, that. Oh God, yeah, it, it was it was maybe maybe enough to not completely lose our our shirts on it, but it was such great education for me, you know, like it really, it made me have to tighten up my, my playing and, and then also, you know, just, just getting to where, you know, if you're playing every single day and doing that, that kind of stuff, you, you have to be able to have a kind of work ethic with it. And, uh, and, and learning how to, you know, sleep in a van and whatever, you know, so probably wouldn't be able to do it again at this point in my life. I, I don't know that I'd be able to actually hold up all right, but, but I, I don't regret any of it for a minute. It did, that, that warp Tour, though, ended up pretty much killing that band. Uh, this program that we've got going now, it's called Soldier Songs and Voices. Um, originally, there's an organization, 501c3 nonprofit organization called the Welcome Home Project, and they, they put out a two-disc uh, compilation album a few years ago called uh, Voices of a Grateful Nation. And it was a bunch of Texas artists just singing songs, just kind of like w- welcome home kind of stuff. And some of it was a little kind of too flag waving, you know, sort of false patriotism or something, you know, for my taste at least. But I'd had a song that I, I'd written about a returning Vietnam vet with uh, struggling with PTSD and um, and in the song itself, it, it never actually comes out and says who this guy is. But that's that was who I, I had in mind when I was writing this. <clears throat> so contributed this song to the album, and, and I was I was I was one of the only f- folks that contributed to the album that was of the age of the guys that that were over there serving at least. And so I told him I was like, man, just put me to work, whatever I can do. And so I'd, I'd go out and I'd do a lot of benefit gigs and stuff, or, or you know, supporting the record and. Um, and so started encountering a lot of vets and getting to know them and, and realizing just how much music sort of played into getting them, getting them through things and, uh, and getting them home. And 
And so they were taking a lot of the, the proceeds from the album. I think they probably lost a lot of money actually with it. They, they, they weren't people in the music business, you know, so they, they had no idea what they were doing with it, but, but they had the best intentions. And so they, they were trying to start doing uh, like music therapy programs and had one thing going that was, it, it just wasn't very effective. They, you know, it was, uh, uh, it's in a real kind of sterile sort of environment, and and it was it was too much therapy. It's kind of like you know these actual therapists, music therapists that were were running this, and so I kind of took a look at it and I went, you know what? Let's let me try something. You know, let's let's maybe let's see if we can't get this with like working musicians, songwriters, and hopefully guys about the, the same age group, and let's do this in music venues. So it'll get them into a kind of like neutral territory because the the last thing these guys want is more therapy or more you know trying to fix anything. But they're gonna still they're they're really proactive trying to trying to find ways to get get their lives back. You know, so so let's do this in you know in a real kind of positive way and you know and then teach them how to write songs. You know, because because aside from you know, there's a lot of benefits to the the way the brain thinks about music and where like memory is stored in association with music and that kind of thing. There's a lot there that that already it's going to be rebuilding the synapses and the neurological pathways and everything. But but then you you tack on, you give them an outlet, you get, give them a way to be able to to talk about their experiences, you know, and stuff that. They, they wouldn't be able to actually just sit down and say to a therapist or, or wouldn't be able to say to their, their spouse or, or their kids or something. Um, so this was about two years ago. And, and then I encountered a guy out in Colorado. Me and my dad were out there playing together. And, and I was kind of I, I was talking about what, what we had just started doing. And somebody went, oh, well, that's like a so-and-so. Uh, what what he's got going in, in Grand Junction, and I went, what really? There's and, and and they gave me his number, and I called him, left him a message, and I because we were we were actually gigging in Grand Junction the next day, and and he calls me back, and he's like, Dustin, you will never believe this. I used to live right across the alley from you guys in Sylvan Park in Nashville, <laughs> <laughs> and his two sons who both served in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I probably played Little League with them down at McCabe Field. No kidding. And so, and, and his group was called Soldier Songs. And at the time, we were, we were still kind of using the voices of a grateful nation, but I was going, well, that's, that's kind of more, you know, that's not the vets themselves. So, so we sort of partnered up with, with Tony. Tony Rosario is the guy's name out in Colorado. And we, we, we started Soldier Songs and Voices. And it's it's still it's under the Welcome Home Project, five hundred one c three. But so since then, we've got there's five programs throughout Texas now: Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Lagrange, uh, San Marcos, where I started the first one. Got uh, there's one in Florida. There's a couple in Oregon. We just started Idaho, uh, Colorado. Course, and then and they're just springing up all over the place. I, I talked to a guy 
well, there's there's a guy in L.A. that wants to start one. There's uh, been talking to uh, Chelsea Crowell, Rodney's Rodney Crowell's daughter, about maybe starting one in Nashville. She's she's done a lot of nonprofit work also, and uh, I think Nashville would really embrace it uh, as well. But what it, it essentially is is you know we're we're just getting around a table once a week, and you know maybe maybe we'll talk about music, maybe we'll just sit there and talk, and it's it's guys from all the different every branch of service and every you know there's there's folks from vietnam there's folks from the gulf war career guys that have been in there you know for 25 years and and what i realized was that there's such a disconnect between civilian and soldier and and how little that that we know about what life is like for them and I think my dad, yeah, my dad was playing Joe's Pub, I think, in New York City. And it's like in the, some rat hole basement dressing room or something. I think it was Joe's. I don't know. It, it, wherever it was, he's sitting there like staring into this broken mirror in this bathroom that's just got graffiti and piss everywhere and stuff. And, and he's kind of like staring at himself, kind of sort of humming, I'm so lonesome I could cry or something, you know, and. And he finally kind of was like, and, and he knew, I was, I was probably 10 years old at the time, and he knew that I had already made up my mind, that this is, this is what, how, how my life is going to be. And he's just going, son, don't do it, don't do it. And finally he goes and he, he picks up the phone and he calls. And, and, and he, he told me, he was like, I just want to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into <laughs> here, you know. And he kind of explained what he was doing that night. Having a, a musician for a father, you know, he he never. I mean, he was always encouraging, but but he never put any pressure on me at all. And in fact, kind of on the other side of it too, you know, he just he made sure I was prepared and knew what I was getting into, though. Uh, and and so yeah, and I, I I said, you know what, this is this, this is what I'm going to do, and, and he he just went. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lifer, and you know, but it's so wonderful having having that with with you know your your father, and you know, like the other day, I, I went out to his place in Wimberley and and just sat up all night, and we're showing each other stuff we're working on, and going, well, you know, did you think about doing this with it, and and no, oh, that's a great idea, you know, it, it, well, what if it would, and you know, like, but this actually, we can, you know, we. We totally lean on each other and, you know, really kind of feel a lot more connected to each other, I think, because we, we you know, we're, we're both going after the same thing, trying to figure out the best rhyme for love or whatever, you know. I, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for that and having, having that connection with them. I appreciate you stopping by and chatting with me and, uh, meeting up with me today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. I, I just drove from Houston. You just drove from Conroe? Yeah, basically the same drive. <laughs> <laughs> just about. Uh, you know, go get tacos or something. You know, let's find a time we can actually sit down on a stage together.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Dustin for coming over to my buddy Cameron's house and having this chat with me. You can find out everything you need to know about Dustin at DustinWelch.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment and subscribe while you're there. You'll get a brand new episode for free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.